Well, last week was a full week. We looked at the first nine plagues, and hopefully in doing so, we were able to see that they were not just random acts of God, but in fact, they were filled with purpose. Remember, one of those purposes that we talked about is how the plagues brought judgment upon Egypt for their treatment of Israel. We talked about that promise that God made back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when he said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And so the plagues were a curse in fulfillment of that promise because of the way Egypt had treated Israel. But we also learned that the plagues were used to put God's power on display. You remember how I showed you how each plague was specifically designed to demonstrate God's power over specific Egyptian gods. We talked about how even the magicians who called upon these false gods could add to the plagues that curse from God, but they couldn't reverse it. And after two, they were rendered powerless. And you remember what they said? They said, surely this is the hand of God. In other words, this God is greater than anything we've got. It was used for God's judgment. It was used to put God's power on display. But there's one other thing that I want us to see. It was used to proclaim God's name. For this one, I want you to look at a passage with me. Exodus chapter 9. Verse 14, Exodus chapter 9, verse 14. Listen closely to what God says in verse 14. He says, For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people, so that, we're going to begin to see some reasons, you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, again, here we go, I've allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. The plagues had a purpose to bring judgment, to put his power on display, and to proclaim his name through all the earth. And Did you notice in verse 15, God basically says, I could have ended your existence in an instant, but I have allowed you to remain. Why? So that you may see my power displayed and my name proclaimed through all the earth. And listen to me closely. That is the evidence of God's grace that they were able to see those things. And every time that happens... It is an invitation to believe. That's why he wanted them to see the things that he was doing. Now, when you think about these purposes of the plagues, it's important to see them as kind of overlapping realities. They are things that are occurring all at the same time. So, for example, for one, it it may have been seen as judgment. For another, it's a wake-up call. For some, it was seen as a, um, a warning. For others, it was a reminder. For some, it humbled them as they bowed before the Lord. And for others, it hardened them as they stood proud against Him. And God's mercy in the midst of that judgment was an invitation for everyone to believe. Not only Hebrews, but Egyptians as well. But as we look at this final plague, it's really important to see it 
standing alone. That's why I worked so hard to get through those nine plagues last week so that we could spend a, a, a focused amount of time looking at this final plague. It, it has an application that is so deeply relevant to our lives today. In fact, from this one event, God will establish three separate memorials that are absolutely packed with meaning and purpose. Each one has a specific purpose, a, a timeless truth, and they're all pointing to this great event that is to happen sometime yet future. I see this as one of those perfect examples of how God's Word is living and active. We know that that's what Scripture says. It says God's Word is living and active. And so it's trying to make the point is that when this book was written, it's not like a history book where these are dead words about dead people that have some relevance to the past. But in fact, it's living and active. God's Word is alive and well. And as we will see today, it has wonderful application to our lives right now. The question is, will your heart be humble or will your heart grow hard? Will you receive God's Word or will you stand on your own? The fact that you were here this morning is evidence of God's grace. The fact that any of us still remain is an evidence of His mercy. And any time you see that happening, it is an invitation to believe. So listen closely to what His Word says this morning because it was written for you today. Let's pray together. Father, what a beautiful testimony. What a beautiful truth to realize the power of Your Word its relevance in our lives, and that we don't have to sit here this morning like we're in a history class at school talking about things that have happened in the past that we really can't figure out what in the world they have to do with our lives today. This is different. This is living and active. It has direct application to our hearts and our lives right now. And the fact that we remain, the fact that we are in this place, the fact that we are hearing these words is an invitation to believe what you have promised to be true. So whatever distractions that may exist in each of our hearts and minds, things of the past, things yet future, things that would want to pull us away, Lord, by your hand and the work of your spirit, would you put those to rest so that our hearts may be attentive to what you say this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, turn to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. This is going to be so much fun. I've been looking forward to this all week long. All right, Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man asks from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed. Isn't that interesting? Condemned, now esteemed. 
in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I'm going out into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstone, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. God tells Moses exactly what will happen, what will be the response, and what Israel must do. This final plague, all the firstborn in the land of Egypt will die. That includes the the children of men as well as the offspring of animals. And as a result, God says Pharaoh will drive his people out completely from the land of Egypt. Now, this plague of death is important. Because if you know anything about Egyptian history, you know how enamored they were with death, right? In fact, what's this? Pyramid, right? We know that. But it's more than that. It's a giant tomb. Because these are the places where people were buried, mainly people of royalty, And when they were buried, in their tombs were stacked all kinds of of articles of of gold and silver and possessions that they had gained because the purpose was to equip them with things that they could then take into the afterlife. We all know about the mummies, right? How their bodies were so intricately preserved. There was a reason for that. They believed they were preparing that body once again for the afterlife, the the life to come. They were enamored with death. One of their most powerful gods was a god by the name of Osiris, the god of the dead. His name alone tells you the significance. It means, O sovereign one. He was assisted by what is probably a more familiar god, at least in picture, probably not in name. His name was Anubis. Anubis was the God who would lead them as a guide from one world to the next. You'll recognize him because he's the one that has the head in the shape of a dog. And if you look at Egyptian art, you see him all over the place, right? Looks very familiar, doesn't it? Well, I think because of that, it should not be surprising that God says what he does in verse 7. Look at what he writes in verse 7. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. It's not a coincidence. It's the evidence of God's power being put on display. It's only fitting that this final plague overrule their most powerful false gods it has a final result it has no answer it is the end pharaoh releases the israelites out of fear because there is no greater fear than the fear of death but this final plague also marks the end of an era i want you to turn over to chapter 12 verse 40 We're going to kind of skip back and forth a little bit, so just bear with me. I want you to look at verse 40 in chapter 12. This is what he writes. It says, Now the time that the sons of Israel 
lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. As we read this passage, it seems to be very obvious that Moses is trying to make a point that we don't want to miss this day. To the very day, something happened, and it's of something significant. And the reason Moses goes to such great attempts to make sure we don't miss this is because what he's saying is tied to a promise. It's back in uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. It says, God said to Abraham, Know for certain that the, your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Tell me if all this begins to sound familiar as I continue to read. Where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years, but I will judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Does that sound familiar at all? Written hundreds and hundreds of years before this day ever got here. So that when it did, Moses is saying, don't miss this day. This is important. God made a promise to Abraham's descendants. And that day has come. It's the end of an era. Moses is trying to mark this day because it also, as it marks the end of an era, marks the beginning of something new. Let's look at what that is in chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Do you see what God just did? This is of such significance in the lives of His people. He just established a brand new calendar. So that from this day, all of life was to be now ordered by this divine calendar. This God perspective based on what he was about to do. Because from God's point of view, this is where it all begins. To drive that point home, he gives them a memorial that's attached to the beginning. That he wants his descendants generation after generation to practice from year to year to year and so let's look at what that memorial is chapter 12 verse 3 speak to all the congregations of israel saying on the 10th of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household a lamb for each household now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then let he and his neighbor nearest to his house. They're to take according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, one year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh and at the same night roast it with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at, or with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head, its legs, along with its entrails. You shall not leave any of it 
over until morning, but whatever is left, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt at that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you and on the house where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Through your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Now I read all that because I wanted you to get a picture of the significance of what God is describing for the people as he establishes this memorial. Let me hit some of the highlights that I'm certain we don't want to miss. As we mentioned, God started a new calendar, and this is to be the very first event that begins and marks this new year, this new calendar. It is a most important event. To begin with, each family was to take a healthy, unblemished, one-year-old lamb. God instructs them to take this lamb into their house, and if you look closely, it's for a period of four days. So imagine this cute little one-year-old unblemished lamb in your house for a period of four days where you feed it, you care for it, might even play with it. This little animal is going to come like a, like a pet would for you and I. And then at twilight, they were to take this animal and sacrifice it by cutting its throat. As the blood drains out, they are to take that blood and mark the door of that household. Then they would take that lamb and they would prepare to eat it as a meal. Now, it reminds me when I was growing up as a kid, we raised animals from time to time. And one particular year, we raised a calf and made the very terrible mistake of naming the animal. Because there came a time where that animal was processed, and I remember distinctly, I can see it in my mind's eyes, sitting at the table with my brothers and parents, and I, we were eating steak. And I remember asking mom and dad, Mom, Dad, are we eating Betsy? <laughs> it's actually the same idea here. God wanted to make sure that the Israelites emotionally connected to this animal. They wanted to make sure that, that it meant something. That there was a personal connection to the sacrifice that was being made. Now the blood that was put on the door was essential to their protection. That sacrifice had a purpose. It's important for us to understand that the Israelites were just as much at risk with this final plague as were the Egyptians. The angel of death plays no favorites. In fact, no one escapes death unless God provides a way of escape. And the sacrifice of that lamb was that way of escape. The only reason 
the plague of death would pass over those homes is if the blood of that sacrifice marked that home. Now, after the sacrifice was made, God gave them some instructions on how they were to prepare and then celebrate that Passover meal together. I think it's safe to say that they were to come to the table as if they were in a hurry to leave. Even the bread that they made was to be unleavened because they didn't want to give it time that it would need to rise. So it was an unleavened bread. We also know that the meal was to be eaten with bitter herbs. Those bitter herbs were to leave a sour taste in your mouth to remind you of the bitter treatment that you had as you were a slave in Egypt. They were even to, to instructed to eat with their sandals on, which would have been very unusual in that culture. They would have not have done that on a normal basis. And if you had a cane, you were to hold the cane in your hand as if you were ready to leave. You come to the table as if you're in a hurry to leave. Now, I don't know about anybody in your home. Anybody have slow eaters in your home? <laughs> We've had my parents over uh, recently, and we were talking about this. My mom is a slow eater. I mean, I'm finished before she gets one little thing done. And we were talking about this, and, and I thought about it when we got to this place because if we were celebrating Passover together, we would be constantly telling my mom, Mom, you've got to eat faster. You've got to hurry up. We've got to get ready to go. We gotta. That's the sense of this meal is it's, it's in haste. We need to finish this because something is coming that we need to be prepared for. And yet, no one could leave the house. Now just think for a second what it, had been like, what it would have been like for these Israelites to have celebrated this Passover meal as God had instructed it for the first time. How unusual, how odd it would have been. The sacrifice of the lamb that they had emotionally connected to. The blood on the door. The hurried anticipation waiting for what's next. And then the silence would have been broken with sounds of weeping in the land. Because all throughout Egypt, there was a cry of death in every home. Look at chapter 12, verse 29. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captain who was in the dungeon, at, and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up and get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel. Go, worship the Lord as you've said. Take both your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and go. Bless me also. Everything happened just as God said it would. And after that Passover meal, in the middle of the night, the Israelites were allowed to leave. And we know that as they exited the city, the Egyptians gave them over articles of gold and of silver. They essentially plundered the land of Egypt, never having lifted a finger. And once they continued, as they left Egypt, God also guided their steps. There was still more for them to learn. Look at Chapter 
12, verse 14. Go back to chapter 12, verse 14. I'm going to start where we left off with Passover meal because this is a continuation. Listen to what it says beginning in verse 14. Now this day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout all your generations. Celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. And then he goes on. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. But on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. From whoever eats anything leavened from this first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them except what shall be eaten by every person that alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in the very day I brought you your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. Seven days. There shall be no leaven found in your houses, for whoever eats what is leaven, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened. In all your dwellings, you shall eat unleavened bread. So the Israelites left Egypt. They literally left carrying all their provisions with them including some of the leftover dough from the bread that they had prepared the night before at Passover. And God uses that reality and turns it into a memorial. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that memorial was to remind them of His cleansing. For seven days after that Passover meal, they were to eat only bread that was unleavened. And so let's talk about why that's important. How many of y'all have ever heard of or baked friendship bread? A lot of people. It's very common. You know how it works. You mix some ingredients together, but that recipe doesn't work until somebody gives you a friend, which is why they call it friendship bread, gives you a starter. That starter is essentially leaven. It's yeast. It's what allows those ingredients to come together and make dough and then rise to make bread. Well, in the ancient times, they had a very similar process. Because each time that someone made dough, they would take a pinch of that dough and reserve it to be the yeast that was necessary for that next batch of dough to rise and become bread. So the Bible takes this very well-known practice and turns it into a parable. In the Bible, leaven or yeast is often used as a symbol for sin. You'll remember, Jesus tells his disciples to beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees. He's telling them that because of the sinful corruption of their teaching. You'll remember in the book of Galatians, Paul tells his reader that a little bit of leaven leavens the entire dough. He's making the point that the sinful compromise infects all of life. Leaven is used to describe sin. And so when we're talking about unleavened bread, it's pointing to a life without sin. In the context of Passover, it is tied to this new beginning, this fresh start when God begins a new work in the lives of His people. 
They've been delivered from slavery. They're no longer incorporated into the life of Egypt. They are now set apart as a holy nation. They are leaving the leaven of idolatry in that culture to be a holy people set apart for God's purposes. Do you get the picture? See, God was not only interested in getting His people out of Egypt. He was also very concerned about getting Egypt out of His people. And so that's why these two are tied together so that they really are one. But there's very distinct memorials that have very distinct messages tied to them. They were not only being saved from something, they were being saved to something. Remember, the Israelites, from what we've just read, have been in the land of Egypt for over 400 years. So for this generation, life in Egypt, that's all they've known. And so God is using this feast, this memorial, to remind them who they are, or more importantly, whose they are. They are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. Their deliverance has now made a new life possible as people of God. Do you see how he wants to drive that home? So these two feasts were tied together. But then God goes on to give yet another memorial during this same time that is also filled with meaning. Look at Exodus chapter 13, verse 11. Exodus chapter 13, verse 11. Now, when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanites, so he's looking yet future, he says and swore to you and your fathers and gives to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord. But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among you, your sons, you shall redeem. And it shall be when your son asks you in the time coming, saying, what is this? Then you shall say to him, with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And it came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of the man and the firstborn of the beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. So it shall serve as a sign on your hand and this, on your phylacteries, on your forehead. For with a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So once they leave the land, they are making their way to the promised land. And in the normal pattern of life, children will grow up, people will get married, children will be born. God looks at that very anticipated pattern in life and He builds a memorial of His redemption. And He instructs them for every firstborn son, both of people and animal, to be devoted to the Lord. So let's talk about what's important about this firstborn. It's clear that He highlights that specifically. 
The plagues afforded were on all firstborn, and God in this says the firstborn son when it comes to your children. See, in that culture, the son was the primary heir. That's how the name was passed down, right? In the cases of royalty, that firstborn son would be the next king. So in that sense, the firstborn son represented the family's future. So by devoting the son, you were showing that the whole family belonged to God. He represented all of his offspring as the future of that family. Does that make sense? So God points to that very important part of their culture And he tells them to devote them to the Lord. And he goes on to explain, now when it comes to animals, that devotion to the Lord comes through a sacrifice. You are to sacrifice the firstborn of the animals as a covering for the rest of the offspring of those animals. With one exception. Here he highlights the the donkey. Isn't that interesting? Look at verse 13 again. But every offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of a man among his sons, you shall redeem. Now, the reason, as we will learn as Scripture continues to unfold, that the donkey was set apart is different is because the donkey was considered to be an unclean animal, an unholy sacrifice. And so you couldn't sacrifice something unholy for the purpose of redemption. You had to sacrifice something that had been set apart for the purpose of redemption. So in the case of a donkey, you couldn't sacrifice it. You either had to kill it or you would take a lamb and sacrifice it in its place. Now, isn't it interesting that in the very same verse, right next to it, as if one thought flows into the other, he goes from donkey to son of man. Why is that? Because we like that animal, are also unclean. Unholy. Because of the presence of sin in our lives. And the only way that that firstborn son could be redeemed is by the sacrifice of a lamb who took its place. Redeem your son through the sacrifice of a lamb. It was the memorial of redemption. So I want you to just grasp what we've just looked at. Through one event, three memorials that are absolutely packed with meaning. Isn't this amazing? And and doesn't it really impress upon us the importance of what just took place and what God wants his people to know and remember and understand from generation to generation from that day forward and there is no end? It's important. It's that important. So much so that he actually starts a new calendar so that everything begins with these memorials. God clearly went to great lengths to teach us something through these traditions. And we could spend all day uncovering the depth of what's included here. But let me highlight some of the most important. Let's start with Passover. 
Passover is a picture of God's deliverance. His deliverance in our lives from sin. Sin holds us in bondage. It is a cruel taskmaster. Apart from death, there is no escape from its rule in our life. We are unclean, unholy. The wages of sin is death. And the only way we escape the wages of sin is if God provides a way of escape. And that's what he did through the blood of the Lamb. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We are redeemed by His sacrifice. Everything that God was doing was pointing to this truth and was fulfilled in that promise. And just like in the tradition of Passover, that sacrifice needs to mean something to you. There needs to be a personal connection. There needs to be a name. It needs to be Jesus Christ who gave his life for the forgiveness of your sins. It was a sacrifice that set you free. But not just free from something. You have been set free to something. That's the whole idea of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. <laughs> because it's supposed to point us to our new life in Christ. What does it tell us in Scripture? You are a new creation in Christ, right? Old things have gone. New things have come. When God works in your life through your faith in Christ, there's a new beginning. It starts here. This is where life begins. That was the point of the memorial because it's the point of redemption. That's where life begins. You are set apart. You, Church of Jesus Christ, are the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the people of God's own possession. We belong to Him. Why? Because we've been redeemed. That's the memorial of the firstborn. The Bible tells us very clearly that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. And the terminology is intentional. It's intentional because it's intended to tell us that He is our representative. That His sacrifice applies to all of the family of God. So that whoever belongs to God through faith in Christ are covered by the sacrifice made by Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. He took our sin in exchange, gave us His righteousness. That's why we are called in Scripture co-heirs with Christ. That's why the Bible tells us if the Lord has set you free, you are free indeed. Because everything that belongs to Him has now been credited to you. Most importantly, eternal life in His presence. Isn't it incredible how all of these things, so intentional by the hand of God, 
pointed so specifically to the life of Christ so that this morning, for you and me, it means something really personal and so very important. Now, I want to make one other observation, especially in light of things that are happening in our world today. We didn't look at this passage, so let me read it to you. It says, Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramesses, that's in Egypt, to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. It's important to see in this passage that the mixed multitude was separate and apart from the sons of Israel. These were not ethnic Jews. The mixed multitude included all kinds of people from all kinds of races and cultures and ethnicities. But they all shared one very important thing in common. They were saved by grace through faith. Now take that very same thought and think about the church. The church of Jesus Christ is a mixed multitude. People from all kinds of cultures and races and ethnicities. The Scripture tells us that there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. We could go on black nor white. But we are all one in Christ Jesus. We have one thing in common. Saved by grace through faith. You see the connection? As a church... We should be on the leading edge of proclaiming this truth. In a world of racial unrest and political division, we should look different. We should be a people who protects unity, who promotes diversity, and who stand together for the sake of the gospel. We shouldn't look at society and cast blame on things that are happening around us. We live in a sin-cursed world. Who's to blame? We shouldn't fear and hide from what is happening around us. Because here's the deal. We have the answers to the questions the world is struggling to find. We have it. We should be living what they are looking for and should proclaim this truth at the top of our lungs. It's in times like this that it should be the time for us to rise up and let our light shine before men so that they may see our good works and the truth of what God accomplished and glorify our Father in heaven who made all of it possible. And wouldn't it be great at some point to have a conversation about what we talked about this morning and how God was so intentional about His work in the past to in such a way establish memorials that were to be practiced from generation to generation so that they all pointed to the person and work of Jesus Christ in which they were all fulfilled so that generations and generations later we can look back at all those things and see that we are the ones that He accomplished that work for to the praise and glory of His name.
By grace, we have been saved through faith. That's a story that needs to be told. In a light, and a light in a very dark world. The question is, will your heart be humble, or will your heart grow hard? Will you receive God's word, or will you stand on your own? We've been delivered. We've been set apart. And we have been made ambassadors of reconciliation. There's a purpose that we remain. And that purpose is always an invitation to believe. And guess who gets the privilege to extend the invitation? Me and you. So with that thought in mind, I want to close. And I'm going to read a passage that you're familiar with. I want you to think context of what we talk about, the significance of what this means to you and I today. So if you would bow as I pray. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. And has, he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The fact that we remain is evidence of his mercy. And any time that happens, it's an invitation to believe. Because he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And working together we, with him, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain.